0: Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Hear now, God's word. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we now have heard your word being publicly read, that you will prepare our hearts, marinate our souls, and quicken our minds to be able to receive all that you want us to receive in today's word. Lord, you know the troubles, and you know the tribulations to which we have had to endure, and maybe are still enduring. And Father, we need to once again to be reminded of things that we already know, to be challenged by new things we did not, and to be once again assured of the glorious truth that we deep down need to know is true for our hearts. God, would you help us to live out today's message and that you would begin by making this message powerful and effective in spite of the messenger who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So today's finally the last Sunday where we are going through our sermon series to the book of Proverbs. For the past 12 weeks, we've been going through the book of Proverbs that I've entitled The Pursuit of Wisdom. And the whole point of this series was to look at various manifestations of what a wise life Looks like, And in this time, we looked at certain topics such as how to be a great mom, how to be an honoring father, how to be someone who chooses their friends wisely. And then we looked at practical issues like how to use your wealth for the glory of God, how to be productive, how to speak words of encouragement that uplift and empower the people around you. Well, today, we're going to finish this series by looking at what I consider to be the foundation, the bedrock of a wise life. And that is trusting the right person. You see, life teaches us that who you trust determines whether or not you end up the fool or the wise person. Because if you end up trusting the wrong kinds of people, you will end up suffering the consequences of the fool, where you're facing shame and ridicule and pity and misfortune. But conversely, if you trust the right types of people, Scripture promises that you will live the kind of life that comes with blessings, the blessings that only come from wisdom, blessings such as safety, success, satisfaction, stability, you see? And today, the Bible is going to tell us in no apologetic terms that the one person that if you trust trust more than anyone else will ensure that you end up living a wise life. And of course, I'm talking about God. God trusting god trusting the lord no doubt a phrase that you were taught growing up going to church your whole christian church life but of course what exactly does that mean because there is such a tendency where a phrase or a word becomes so familiar that it becomes slippery to where it goes in one ear and out the other and never settles in our minds and settles down to our heart to where we really understand and therefore live out what that really means what does it mean to really trust god to trust the lord Well, that's what we're going to look at today as we consider what is arguably the most famous passage in the book of Proverbs and really all of Scripture on what it means to trust God. That's Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 8. And as we take a look at this text, the author, King Solomon, is going to describe for us the characteristics of true trusting in God. The characteristics of a trust in God that is genuine. And here Solomon is going to tell us there are three specific characteristics that your trust in God must have if it is to be a genuine trust in the Lord. And these characteristics are as follows. First, your trust in God, if it's to be genuine, it must be a trust of confidence. A trust of confidence. And then number two, it must be a trust of action. And then finally, it must be a trust in the gospel. In order for your trust in the Lord to be true and authentic and genuine, it must be a trust of confidence, of action, and in the gospel. Okay? Let's begin with the first point. First, it must be a trust of confidence. Read again with me verse 5 of our passage where it says the following. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, in the pantheon of all memorable Bible verses, no doubt this is one of the most memorable ones for you, Christian, right? In fact, I'm willing to bet that as I read these words to you, you could recall the first instance when you first heard it and were first taught it, and I'm further willing to bet it was when you were a little child in Sunday school, right? And yet, if I challenge you to think of a recent adult memory where these words were being actively lived out, you can't think of one. Why? Well, just like anything that is not actively remembered, and therefore forgotten, these verses tend to not be actively applied in your adult Christian life. And of course, it doesn't take a genius to figure out why that is so, because as we get older and as we become more and more of an adult, there is a growing tendency for us to believe that we have more freedom and more control over our own lives. I mean, when was the last time any of you adults in here asked, for permission to stay up late on a school night or to eat some junk food or to watch 30 more minutes of your favorite show on television. All things that my children currently need permission for. You get the point. As we grow into mature adults, there is this sense, this growing belief that we have more freedom, more control over our own lives, and therefore a growing trust in ourselves than we had before. And because that is so, we come to this passage with this adult mindset. And to be honest, we tend to have a very dismissive attitude towards it, where we kind of think of it as kind of childish, kind of silly, not something to take seriously to where you would probably say something like, trust in the Lord with all my heart, Pastor? Yeah, maybe if I lived during the time when these words were first penned, you know, before the days of electricity, before the days of technology, before the days of science, but to trust in the Lord with all my heart here and now, knowing what I know, living in the technological world that we're living in, No, I don't think so. Maybe I'll trust God with a quarter of my heart, at most a third of my heart, but all of my heart? Come on. Now, some of you are going to laugh because you think I'm caricaturizing you, right, that I'm being silly and going overboard in my portrayal of you. But I'm telling you right now, I am being dead serious. I'm not caricaturizing any of you. Because whether you admit it or not, this is how all of us move towards this verse. We tend to dismiss it as something that we don't have to take seriously and therefore something that we don't need much confidence in. And I can prove this to you by asking you this simple question. When was the last time you prayed, Christian? And when I say pray, I don't mean those five-second prayers that you lift up before you eat out of habit. I'm talking about those gut-wrenching, heartfelt prayers where you're on your knees clutching your hands and crying out to heaven for over an hour. I'm talking about that kind of prayer. Because the Bible says that kind of prayer is an accurate barometer of how much you truly trust God, to where the more you pray like that, the more you trust in him, and the less you pray like that, the more you trust in yourself. Consider these words from theologian Sam Storms as he says this, Quote, the world around us is telling us that prayer is an empty ritual. Those in the know are saying prayer is a relic of the dark ages, a time when belief in the supernatural went unchallenged. Enlightened and educated people ought to know better, they tell us. Prayer is simply a superstitious way of coping with cries we are otherwise too weak to handle. Our children pray, and we think it is cute. But any serious appeal to a transcendent deity whom we believe can and will play a significant role in the events of human existence is at best outdated At worst, ridiculous, end quote. Our lack of prayer comes from our lack of trust in God. And our lack of trust in God comes from an unfounded trust in ourselves that stems from an over-exaggerated sense of control we think we have over our own lives, which turns out to not be accurate at all, right? Why? Because consider again what it says in verse 7, the second half of verse, I'm not 7, verse 5, the second half of verse 5, it says this, do not lean on your own understanding. If you have a pen, highlighter, you might want to underline or circle that word lean because when you understand that word, it transforms your attitude towards this verse from being silly and childish, something you don't have much confidence in, to something dead serious and therefore something you should have full confidence in. Let me explain why. That word lean is what it means, right? It's when you are depending on something. So for example, let's say one day you are just so tired, so exhausted to the point of passing out and you lean your body up against the wall. What are you doing? You are depending on the strength of the wall to give strength to your body that it currently does not have on its own, right? You are depending on, relying on the stability of that wall to stabilize your body that in and of itself it does not have. And Solomon is saying, believe it or not, this is how every person lives their life. Every single person, no matter what they think, no matter what they believe, is depending on, relying on something outside of themselves, even those people who claim that the only person they trust, the only person they depend on is just themselves. Let me explain with this very insightful quote from theologian Herman Bobbing. Listen to what he says. Every man, even the most learned, is limited in his gifts and energy in the time and place that he lives in. What he can investigate freely and independently for himself makes up only a tiny part of the boundless domain of science. He owes by far the largest part of his knowledge to the investigation of others, and he accepts their testimony on trust as being true. Even more significantly, besides the natural sciences, which are built on observations, there is the science of history, which has no choice but to build on testimonies regarding the past. Although they remain subject to criticism, these testimonies always require a large degree of trust on the historian's part there is no science without personal trust and faith in the testimony of others end quote what's he saying he's saying in spite of what you may think where you feel you can trust yourself depend on yourself rely on yourself and therefore just lean on yourself that is absolutely wrong right doesn't matter if you're the most educated the most staunch atheist you are leaning on something okay okay You are always leaning on something. You see, there is such a common misconception that says just because we know more of how the world works than our ancient ancestors, that therefore that means we can rely on ourselves more, depend on ourselves, trust in ourselves, and no one else. But as that quote Bobbing just showed us, that is so wrong because that is so stupid. Okay? It is so stupid because that is simply not the case. That is simply not the case at all, okay? Sorry, please, I'm so sorry. Time out, one moment. Daddy has to talk. Leah, please sit down, okay? Thank you. Back to Pastor John, all right? Every person lives on faith and depends on something, no matter what they claim. And when you understand this, when you realize that this is the case, Now this idea of trusting God doesn't seem so childish. That this idea of depending on God, having confidence in God, doesn't seem as silly. And in fact, it's actually those who claim that they trust in themselves is the foolish one. They're the silly ones. They're the ones who are ridiculous. And because that is so, now what happens? You have a growing sense of confidence, of trust in God, to where you don't feel any shame whatsoever. As Scripture says, those who trust in the Lord will never be put to shame, and you start believing that, and you start living it out. And as a result, what happens? It means there is no moment in your life where you don't feel that you can always go to God and trust Him for your life, especially in moments where you feel overwhelmed and therefore unprepared. So, practically speaking, Christian, it means this. The next time you're in a situation where you feel like you don't know what to do, The thing you should not be doing is going on YouTube looking up the latest DIY videos or going to the bookstore and picking up the latest For Dummies book that talks about that issue, right? But instead, because you are confident in who God is and that he is truly someone you can trust, you go to God first and foremost, right? Whether it be coming in the form of prayer, going to him in the form of studying scripture, or even going to him through other believers who study the word and pray to God faithfully, you see? Because that is what true trust in the Lord means. It is a trust of confidence, a confidence that is never going to be put to shame. Okay? And therefore, you don't have to be ashamed to admit it and to live it out. Now let's move on to the second characteristic of a genuine trust in God, and that leads me to my second point. It's a trust of activity. Read again with me verse 6 where it reads, In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Again, if you have that highlighter or pen, circle or underline that phrase all your ways all your ways because it's when you understand that phrase that you are protected from making a common mistake that so many christians make when it comes to trusting in god let me explain that phrase all your ways comes from a specific hebrew word that is literally called Derek. Derek. and what is direct it literally means road or path road or path now what do you do on a road or path you move on it right You're supposed to be active. You're supposed to be moving. There's supposed to be activity, whether it's driving on the road or walking on the path or running the path. You are actively moving on a road or path because that is what you do, right? If you saw a car just parked in the middle of the road, if you saw a running path where a person is just sitting or standing there, you know something is off. Something is not right because that's not what you do with a path. A path and a road is designed for there to be movement, for there to be activity, not passivity, not inactivity. And guess what? That is also true when it comes to your trust in God. The Bible says that your trust in God must be an active trust. Christian, hear me when I say this. Trusting in God is not a passive thing where you're just sitting there waiting for God to make the first move. No, trusting God is an active trust, right? Right? Now, some of you Christians might be like, well, pastor, doesn't the Bible say that we're to wait on the Lord as a way of trusting him? Oh, what's wrong with that? Why can't I take that verse literally, huh? Doesn't the Bible itself say that that is what we should be doing? Okay, fair point. But you know, the Bible also says that if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, right? Or if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, right? And I would hope that you would not take that literally because you'd be in a lot of hurt, right? And that same idea applies to this idea of just waiting on the Lord to mean just be passive and do nothing. Case in point, back when I was in seminary, there was a guy I went to school with, a classmate of mine, for the most part was a normal person, didn't really have any major issues except for one. (laughs) And that is every time we hung out, He would constantly complain. He would constantly bemoan of how much he hated being single. Like clockwork. Every time we hung out with our mutual classmates, he would be like, man, I'm so sick of being single. When is it going to be my turn? When is it going to be my time? I'm so tired of going to this wedding and that wedding and that person's wedding. I want to get married. John, can you pray for me? Can you just fast on top of prayer? Come on, are you doing your part? Aren't you helping me? Don't you care? I mean, constantly he would be like this to where at one point I got so fed up that I literally rebuked him to his face. And I said, dude, what do you want me to do? Who do you think I am? You want me to be matchmaker or something? You think I'm Cupid, right? If you're fed up of not being married, do something. Here's $20. You see that girl in our library? Go ahead, take her out to dinner. Take her to a movie. Take her out to coffee. Just do something. You You know what this guy said to me? No, I'm all good. I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm just going to wait on the Lord, and I'm going to trust that he is going to provide. I haven't seen this guy in decades, but last I heard, he's still single. He's still working at the church that he was working at in seminary, and he's still complaining. Christian, trusting in God is not a passive thing where you're just twiddling your thumbs, waiting for God to do something that he's called you to do yourself. Our trust in God is an active trust. It's a trust of action, right? To where you are proactive and moving towards a specific goal that God has called you to hit. Consider these words from theologian Kevin DeYoung as he writes this, quote, Trusting in God's will of decree is good. Following his will of desire is obedient. Waiting for God's will of direction is a mess. It is bad for your life, harmful to your sanctification, and allows too many Christians to be passive who strangely feel more spiritual the less they actually do. God is not a magic eight ball we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. He is a good God who gives us brains, shows us the way of obedience, and invites us to take risks for him. We know God has a plan for our lives. That's wonderful. The problem is we think he's going to tell us the wonderful plan before it unfolds. We feel like we can know and need to know what God wants every step of the way. But such preoccupation with finding God's will, as well intention as the desire may be, is more folly than freedom. The better way is the biblical way. Seek first the kingdom of God and then trust that his will will take care of our needs even before we know what they are and where we are going, end quote. Christian, you need to understand this. God created the world and the people in it, not so that you would take a back seat and be passive. He created this world and the people in it for you to fully participate in and to be actively involved and proactively engaged in. So going back to this guy I went to school with, He was wrong to think that he didn't have to do anything and that God would just magically cause his wife to appear before his very eyes and into his life. But how is that trusting God? Because the very notion of trusting God assumes real vulnerability. What's that? It's true. Trusting God assumes real vulnerability. What do I mean? Well, if I'm driving on the GW Bridge, I'm trusting that it's safe to drive on, right? But if I'm sitting in my living room couch, I'm not trusting that the bridge is safe to drive on. I may believe it's safe to drive on, but I'm not actively trusting that the bridge is safe to drive on because I'm on my living room couch. I'm not on the GW Bridge. Hear me when I say this. Trust is not believing something is true. Trust is depending on something is true in a moment of vulnerability. Believing something is true is very different from trusting that it is true. I mean, just consider the story of Charles Blondin. You guys remember the story of Charles Blondin? For those of you who don't know, Charles Blondin was a professional tightrope walker who lived in the 1800s. And there's a story going around that one day he went to Niagara Falls, and he put a massive tight wire across the surging waters, the falls, right? And as he did this, obviously, a massive crowd started gathering around wondering, what in the world is this guy doing? And so as he gets ready to walk on the rope, right, he asks this question to the crowd. Who of you in here think that I can walk across this rope back and forth safe and sound? And everyone in unison cried, we believe. And sure enough, Charles Blondin walked back and forth on the tightrope. Right after he did, he asked this question. Who among you here think that I can do the same thing, but this time pushing a wheelbarrow back and forth and come back safe and sound? And again, the crowd yelled in unison, we believe, we believe. And sure enough, Charles Blondin did. He went across the road back and forth on a wheelbarrow, right? And then afterwards, he asked this question, who here believes that I can do the same thing, but this time with a person sitting on my shoulders? And this time, the crowd got really excited and started screaming top of their lungs, we believe, we believe, we believe. <laughs> to which he then asked, all right, who among you in here wants to volunteer? Silence, right? Why? Because believing something is true is not the same thing as trusting that it is true. Why? Because trust is not passively believing something is true. It is actively depending on something is true in a moment of real vulnerability. And this is something that we really need to grasp. Why? Consider what it says in the second half of verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him. All of your ways, acknowledge him. How many of our ways are we to trust God with? All of it, right? Now, the fact that Solomon has to give this command that we are to trust God with all of our ways, what does that imply? Doesn't it imply that sometimes, many times, we don't trust God with all of our ways? That there are some parts of our life, some area of our life, some ways of our life that in spite of what we may feel, in spite of what we may think, in spite of what we say we believe, we don't really trust God with? Think about the areas of your life whether it be your financial life, your work life, your sex life, your recreational life, your financial life, right? And ask yourself, do you really believe that God is trustworthy and do you actively depend on God, right? Some of you, if you're honest, you'll confess, no, I don't. But some of you might be like, well, I don't know. How do I figure out whether or not there's a part of my life that I actually trust God with or don't trust God with? Well, the answer is simple. The areas of your life where you feel no vulnerabilities is most likely an area of your life where you don't trust God with. Let me say that again. The areas of your life where you feel no sense of vulnerability is probably an area of your life where you don't trust God with. To where essentially you're saying, you know what, God, when it comes to financial life, I'm good. I got this figured out. I don't need your input. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I got this. I'm good. I don't need you. I don't need to trust you. I can trust in myself. Yeah. Yeah. And yet consider what the Apostle James says about that kind of attitude. Recorded for us in verse 13 of chapter 4, he writes this, quote, Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and will stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans And all such boasting is evil. What is he saying? He's saying there's no area of your life, no category of your life, no moment of your life where you are not vulnerable because you're nothing more than like a mist. Here one day and gone the next. You see? See, it's only when you understand with real spiritual sobriety that you are nothing, that you are a mist, that you'll come to a place where you trust God. And yet you admit, don't you, Christian, there is a part of you where you forget that. And in fact, you believe the opposite. You think you're invincible. You think you're invulnerable. You assume so much, and therefore you think trusting God is not necessary. Foolish, James would say. And it's leading you to real danger if you are not careful. And so here's the question. How do you get to this sober-mindedness to where you understand how vulnerable you truly are that therefore will compel you to truly trust God with all your heart, right? An active trust that covers the full range of your entire life. Well, that leads me to the final point for today. It's a trust in the gospel. A genuine trust in God depends on trusting the gospel. Read again verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil you see that phrase be not wise in your own eyes what does solomon mean by that what does it mean to not be wise in your own eyes will be helpful to know that the way the bible speaks of wisdom is very similar to how the world speaks of knowledge how does the world speak of knowledge doesn't it usually say that knowledge is power right knowledge is power well scripture would say the same about wisdom To where those who have wisdom have power. And if a person has power, what does that mean? That means they're invulnerable. They have no vulnerabilities, right? So when a person thinks that they are wise in their own eyes, that is basically a person who thinks that they are invulnerable. They have no weaknesses. They have no issues. They have no fractures whatsoever. They are truly, truly capable of depending on themselves, right? And Solomon says, that's not how you should be looking at yourself. Instead, you should be looking at yourself a different way. How? He says it in the second half of this verse, right? Turn away from evil. Solomon is saying, instead of seeing yourself as wise in your own eyes, you need to see yourself as someone who needs to turn away from evil. Why? Two reasons. The first reason is pretty obvious. There is nothing that will shatter a person's delusion of being invulnerable than when he is confronted with his own wickedness. Let me say that again. Nothing will shatter a person's sense of invulnerableness than realizing that he is evil, right? See, the Bible says that you and I have a natural tendency, we have a natural propensity to always go in the direction of evil because like attracts like, right? We go towards evil because we have evil in us. That's why we have to turn away from it. And the only proper response is the one that the Apostle Paul had when he recognized this evil inside of him, recorded for us in Romans chapter 7, where starting in verse 18. He says, and I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Oh, what a miserable person I am, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Here is Paul, maybe for the first time in his life, a man who has a history of trusting in only in himself, only in his abilities, only in his works, and yet the moment he realizes of the evil inside of him, what does he do? He stops trusting in himself. Why? Because of the evil inside of him has shown he's an untrustworthy person. And now he is searching outside of himself, maybe for the first time. For someone to depend on, someone to rely on, someone to put hope in, someone to trust upon, you see? And that segues to the second reason Solomon says we should be thinking like someone who needs to turn away from evil because it identifies who that person is. If we're the ones who are evil, what does that indirectly say about God? It says he's not evil, right? If we're the ones who have to turn away from evil, doesn't that mean he doesn't because he's not evil? If you ever ask a person why they don't trust in God, and I don't mean like an atheist who don't normally believe in the existence of God anyway, but why a believer, a Christian, why they don't trust in God, right? Whether they want to acknowledge it or admit it, it's because they don't feel God is trustworthy, right? When it comes to a single person trusting God with their, with their family life, their sex life, whatever it might be, It's because they don't trust God, right? He's not trustworthy. Don't you know what another word for untrustworthiness is? It's an evil person, right? This is why Solomon says, you need to get your head on straight, you need to remember who is the one that needs to turn away from evil. It's not God, it's you, right? God is good. God is trustworthy. And once you have that in your head, then you're ready to move forward, and depending on the only thing that you can depend on, that will fortify your trust in God permanently. And that, of course, is what? The gospel. It's only when you depend on the gospel by believing in it that you're able to find the strength and the willingness to trust God with all of your heart, with all of your ways. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says even though you are wicked and evil where God has every right to cut you out of his life to want nothing to do with you, to where you have no way of depending on him or relying on him, and he would be so justified in doing that, he doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do? He sends his only begotten son, the eternal son of God, the second person of the mysterious triune Godhead, and sends his son into the world to be a mortal human being, Jesus Christ. Why? So he could suffer the full punishment, the full penalty of all of your sins, all of your untrustworthiness by dying on the cross as your savior substitute. Why? So you can be forgiven? Of course. So that you can have eternal life? Sure. But so that you can have confidence that he is completely trustworthy. You see? This is what Paul was getting at when he once penned these words in Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say? about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Do you hear what Paul is saying? If you believe the gospel that the father gave you the son, why would you ever doubt that he would not give you the things that you truly need to where you should have confidence, that you should have good reason to believe he is so trustworthy? Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say that the gospel allows you to trust that God will give you the things that you really want, but that he'll give you things you truly need, that he's so trustworthy for those things. See, that's a clear distinction you need to understand. God is trustworthy in terms of giving the things that you truly need, right? Because sometimes we do trust God for certain things, and it doesn't come to pass. It doesn't come. It doesn't happen. It doesn't materialize. Now, does that mean that God is not trustworthy? No. It could mean that the thing that you're trusting him for is not what you truly need, but things that you just really wanted, right? And sometimes not getting what you really wanted can actually be, and it most often is, a tremendous blessing. Who among us here cannot acknowledge and confess that sometimes the things we really wanted, once we got it, didn't turn out to be as great as we thought it was. In fact, sometimes we wish we didn't get it at all. Or conversely, who among us can't acknowledge that sometimes God didn't give us what we really wanted and years goes by and we're so grateful he didn't? Thank God I didn't marry this person. Thank God I didn't buy that house. Thank God I didn't end up going to the school or taking that job. Over and over, God shows his faithfulness to us in giving us the things that we truly need as well as not giving us the things we really want. Because here's what you need to understand. God will always give us what we truly need because that is the most important thing of all, evidenced by him giving us the thing that we needed the most. We needed his mercy. We needed his son. And he freely gave him to us at great cost to him and to the son and to the spirit. You see? Is God trustworthy? Of course he is. And so the question that I have for you, what area of your life Right now, right here, God is telling you right now, it's time. It's time to give this to me. It's time to let go of the delusion that you have control when, in fact, you don't. And it's time for you to live out the way that you need to live out as I created you to be. As my child, I as your father, and I will give you all that you need. Will you trust him now? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we do an inventory of where we're at in relation to you, that we would acknowledge areas of our life where we have not trusted you with all of our hearts and in all of our ways. Father, we know that being your child is the most important, the most precious thing of all, but to be honest, there are so many moments, so many times because of certain things we don't have or certain situations that have not come, that we forget that and instead we crave something else and we try to pursue it with the idea that we can trust in ourselves and maybe cannot trust you. But Lord, we pray that you will lovingly challenge us and bring us back to our senses and bring us back to the place where we need to be as your beloved children who are ready once again to trust our faithful father. You are so good. Forgive us when we forget that especially when it also means we forget how wicked we are and how much we have been forgiven. Help us to live out this truth daily, faithfully, by the power of your Spirit who dwells within us. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.